You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. Um, before we enter into that book, I, I will be reading from uh, Matthew chapter 1. You can be able to follow along on the screens to the left and to the right of me. Um, who, uh, for Connor that's doing tech back there, you're giving me 70 minutes to preach. Thank you, my friend. I know you said I'm going through the entire book of Ruth, so, oh, now it's back down. Never mind. Okay. Um, Matthew chapter 1. Um, this is the genealogy leading to Jesus. And uh, as mentioned, there's some just uncommon, out-of-place women, not what you would think the kind of matriarchs of of Sarah uh, and others, but some women that you'd be surprised, especially as Matthew is writing specifically to the Jews that was outside of the Jewish faith that led up again to the birth of Christ. And so we're focusing on um, each of those women in this series. Uh, Starting off with verse 1, here is the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, first person, or second person that we had talked about. Connor did a great job showing. Um, And then Boaz the father of Obed by Ram, Ruth, who we'll focus on today, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who we'll talk about next week, and then skip a couple verses, verse 16, we see Jesus Christ from this genealogy. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So who is Ruth? Why is she important in this genealogy? What can we learn, especially um, anticipating Christ and learn about themes of Advent and today's being hope? And you see so much hope in this book. I preached through this book, and some of you were around four years ago when we went through it. Um, and it is, again, a book of hope. And some of this may sound familiar to that. Uh, but uh, we'll start off with verse 1, chapter 1. God's word says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elamech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elamelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We're going to pause right there. This is a lot to happen to one person. Naomi, whose original name in Hebrew means kindness, at this point in time, does not feel like the Lord is treating her so kindly right now. Both Ruth and Orpah being Moabites wouldn't have been helpful in this situation. As you see, her husband died, her two sons died, and now she is left with her two daughter-in-laws that, by all accounts, you could tell that she loves, but the Moabites, which is, again, we're her 
two daughters are from Moab, um, is listed as one of the Canaanite nations, but they were worshipers of a foreign god. And uh, truthfully, her two sons had no place to go there and to marry them in the first place. In fact, you see heavily in Judges, kind of preluding this, um, how it says that God would spread his wings on Israel as they would obey him, but they disobeyed and therefore would be judged by God because of that. And as Naomi is feeling this pain, this hurt, look what she says a little later in this first chapter, verse 12. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope even if I should have a husband in this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See here, sadly, the conclusion is that the Lord's hand has to be against me because of these trials. That's what she says there. Look what she says in verses 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Remember, it means kindness of God. Call me instead Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full I had my husband, I had my sons, I had future family and legacy to be, to be done in the future, and now the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She has become bitter, as it says here, and often, as many of us know, in our bitterness, we come to the same conclusions. How often... When we go through such trials and suffering, do we feel what is described here with Naomi, isolated, empty, not trusting in the Lord, but also believing the lie that the Lord is against us. And therefore also many times that leads us to believing that others who represent the Lord is against us as well. All of those things are either a result of bitterness or will lead up to bitterness. And it is not how God wants us to deal with trials, even the toughest of trials. We skipped over it briefly, but look back at verse 14 and 15. It says, Then they lift up their voices and they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law when she was going to go back to, again, foreign land with the foreign gods, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And so here is the mom saying, just like her, go back to them. Some of you guys might ask, why would she tell her to go back to her false gods? I can't give you all answers to that. In this state of grief, in grief, she may not be communicating well. She just may not be thinking wisely. We must also remember verse 1 says that there was a famine going on in Israel, but it wasn't going on in Moab. So maybe this is Naomi just trying to take care of her daughter, just her living. Naomi didn't want her daughter lost to suffer even more than what they have already suffered. 
In fact, in verse 9, when she told them to go back to their foreign land, she did say they'd find rest there. And that Hebrew word's translated to security, especially related to potentially getting remarried to another Moabite instead of having the hope that she's going to find that type of security with another Israelite because they weren't supposed to. And she probably knows that's going to be hard in the future. Who's going to do that? My sons did that, and they weren't even supposed to in the first place. It says the word that, like, God who spread his wings over their disobedience that was taken away. All we know is this. Ruth wouldn't go back. Against all wisdom and even her own personal safety, especially in this culture in that time, for Ruth to return to Israel with her mother-in-law as a widow with no male kin, no provision, most likely meant restlessness and wandering, the opposite of that security. Again, remember when we studied Tamar a few weeks ago, security, well-being at that time was almost always directly related to a male patriarch. Widowhood sadly often meant inevitable alienation and destitution. But in the end, Ruth believed this. It's better for me to die from famine, to be mistreated by others around me in Israel with a faithful God than to live in comfort in the land of idols. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You see here, so Ruth was obedient to the Lord over all other reason at that time, took the risk to be there for Naomi in her bitterness and trials. And as she followed the Lord and Naomi, she finds herself Again, obeying, and from what she says in verse 16 through 18, I believe genuine conversion, and I'm following you because I'm following the Lord, but I'm also going to care for you and not leave you in this time. So she follows her, and as she follows her, she finds herself working out in the fields when it's time for the harvest, and she meets what the scriptures say in Ruth 2.1, a worthy man which I know most single women would ask, where can I get one of those at? This man was worthy, though, not because of what the world will look at or say a man is worthy with in the world. Ruth, too, shows that he was a man of God and his beliefs and his interaction with others, as verse 4 indicates. That's not just because it mentions God, but how he later interacted both with Ruth and the people he was above says in verses 8 through 9 that he protects her and she is shocked at the way he is treating her since she's a foreigner. Look what it says in his response. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Again, a Moabite. What, what her mom was concerned about saying, Go back, you'll have a better chance of, of having that security and being protected. But she's finding some of it here. 
Boaz answered her, verse 11, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, that's important right there. Again, that was mentioned in Judges. And when they were disobedient, the judgment of the Lord came because the wings were going to be unfolded in protection of Israel if they listened and they followed him, but they didn't. And so he is saying this. And Boaz knew, as he mentions here in those verses, of Ruth's heart and compassion. He knew of her conversion and sacrifice for Naomi. And so we know God is going to reward such actions in obedience, as he says, and under those wings you've come to take refuge. God will provide that refuge, although it may be tough. And so we see Boaz continue to take care of Ruth, protecting her, providing for her, still surprising her, as in this chapter, being a picture of God's kindness and compassion to Ruth, just like Ruth was for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And soon which we'll explain further, he's introduced and what will be her kinsman redeemer. But before we get too far, just following along with the whole story, some time passes between the end of chapter 2 where Ruth is promised protection from Boaz in the wheat fields amongst the other workers. And in the beginning of chapter 3 where we see Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, wondering, is Boaz going to pursue Ruth for marriage? And he, is he going to try to take her and be that kinsman? I didn't think it'd be possible. I didn't think another Israelite would do it. But is he going to do this for her, for us? And so we see in the beginning of chapter 3, some of you guys know and you're familiar with this. We all know how some moms, some mother-in-laws can be with these type of situations. You go back to the holidays like, when are you going to bring back a man? Right? When are you guys going to start having kids? This is uh, Ruth's situation in the same vein. Chapter 3, verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Again, that next person to potentially be that kinsman redeemer with whose young women you were? So this is the 1200 BC version of those awkward questions in the family reunions. I joke about that here, but really there's something bigger and more important at play in these questions in Naomi's concern. Even beyond the protection part we saw in chapter 1, knowing Ruth was a widow and Moabite, similar to Tamar's situation. She says here, should I not seek and provide rest? That word rest here is Manoah. I did not say mimosa, although through all the trials she went through, she may have been thinking that, but Mamoa. And that word means a place of rest that speaks of the security and tranquility that a woman in Israel longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband. And Naomi knows that her daughter-in-law doesn't have a dad, does not have a husband to help in this area with her, and so it's on her to help seek this for her, to help guide her in this area so that it will be well for her future. This is not a sarcastic, but not so subtle, joking, but not really joking, when are you going to get a man mindset right here? But instead, this is Naomi's conviction, knowing that all throughout Scripture it says, 
sons seek or pursue a wife and that daughters are given in marriage. It is not just the language it, it, it's the language of Scripture, not just Middle Eastern culture or old-school chauvinistic patriarchy. I convictionally believe God's plan revealed through Scripture of what I go through often in pre-marriage counseling on, again, marriage, family, gender roles, that the common phrase that you see behind me in Jer Jeremiah 29, 6, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Again, rooted in from the very first marriage in Genesis chapter 1 to Jesus himself repeating in the book of Matthew, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and then hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one. If they are no longer two, but now one, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He is repeating and affirming this for a purpose. And back up before then, they know, Naomi knows, I play a part, an important part, in helping guide her in this area. One that, if you're a part of this church, and even as your kids grow up to be teens, they're going to hear again, much to the opposite of this world, parents and Christian parents play an important part in guidance in that area. It doesn't mean that every person's going to get married, and it's God's will for every person to get married. We don't get legalistic and go down the road of saying, oh, that means courting is the true way to find these type of things, right? We don't say like, oh, uh, online dating is demonic and sinful because how are you doing that with that? We, we don't go there. I just know and believe that what we see and what was given and the important gift of marriage, Christian parents play a role in the wisdom and guidance with and for that. The good role that can be a gift. And this sets up the rest of the story in chapter 3 where if you feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, please believe me, it gets way more awkward starting in this chapter right here. Because Boaz isn't making any moves here, doesn't seem to be kind of pursuing her, although he's given kind of some indication, the wings spread over you, terminology that, miss, maybe I will. Naomi is going to now try to give it a little push and comes up with the plan for Ruth. With all that said, now that you know what the Bible says about these things, how important it is, how important it is to me and our church, what happens next in this story is just awkward, though. See, right after when she says that, she brings up where Boaz is going to be. She says, see, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Tells her daughter-in-law, wash therefore and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This is what it says here. And listen, briefly on this, I understand the heart behind this, the motive. In fact, the motive is out of what we just talked about with God's way of, again, parents' role in that. I mean, I've come up with plans and schemes myself to play Cupid with two people who love Jesus. And so, again, I understand that. But I'm going to be honest here. 
I would never, ever tell a young woman, let alone my own daughter, to do something like this. And I've read all the commentaries. Again, we preached through this book four or five years ago. I read a ton about this with this and prepped for that sermon series. And many of them say the same exact thing, that at this time in this culture, she gave her preparatory instructions to best case scenario, just really catch his eye to show that, like, hey, if you pursue me, I'm, I'm uh, going to respond, right? I, I want this. Worst case scenario, she's giving her instructions to sleep with them. That's exactly, in fact, what a woman did on the night of their wedding or, or from the washing to the perfume to those specific garments that was pre-gaming for the honeymoon is tonight in that culture. That's what commentaries say. On top of that, it says she waits for him to have a few drinks in the midst of this celebration because of the harvest and then sneaking into his bedroom and says lay down as his, at his feet. Some of your translation says lower limb. There are many, not most, but many that believe that means something else. I personally do not believe that, but it doesn't make it much better here. And on top of all this, it was a time, a place of that celebration where many men did sleep with prostitutes, had concubines, and engage in sexual immorality. And I come back and think again, I would not ever say this to my daughter. I know most parents in here would not say that. It is a complicated text. If you're asking, is she telling Ruth to cross the line? I don't think so. Is she telling her to dance on it? It sure seems so. The text doesn't answer that question. So you can discuss it over community groups this week, okay? All the community group leaders like Christmas party. Uh-uh-uh. Sorry, Christmas party this week. But what we do know, verse 5, and she replied, all that you say I will do. Ruth knew it was God-given duty and role of her mother-in-law to seek the welfare, the security of her. This applies all the more since Ruth committed to an oath to Naomi until death to part, a covenant that they both felt obligated to, and Ruth being obedient to Naomi and God, even if it's uncomfortable and awkward, says, I will do what you say. We can't get away from the fact that it was risky, it doesn't look good, but she knows she needs to be obedient and like we need to be obedient in certain risks as well. Again, it's a tough text here, but let's look where it ends. Because that's where this word redemption, said two words that sticks out from this book, hope and redemption comes from the play. And specifically and literally in Boaz's role, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Uh, it always cracks me up when I read this. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Okay, it's the way it's phrased right there. Like, and behold, a woman at the feet. <laughs> Verse 9, he said, who are you? He didn't recognize, you know, this is a time where some of this was, was, was common, and he's wondering, and he's had interaction, great interaction with her, promised to protect her, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant, and I love what she says here. This is important, because although we don't know fully 
all of the intentions of her mother-in-law. We know Ruth's integrity here. Look what she says. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Again, this is important because that what she had said was something that God promised to Israel. I will spread my wings over you if you're obedient. And where specifically her now dead husband did not do, was not obedient in, she specifically says to him and asking, will you play that part? Will you be obedient to the Lord? Again, it's hard for me to read Ruth 3 without initially thinking how awkward it would be for a rich single man who woke up one day with some woman at the foot of the bed laying next to his feet and how this goes against everything my wife would share with young women concerning just biblical womanhood and, 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 and everything else. And, and as we already know, Ruth is not doing this for seductive reasons, but ultimately out of obedience to her mother-in-law. As Boaz will soon be revealed, as not only her kinsman redeemer, but out of God's sovereignty, the redeemer of Israel. And that he will spread his wings more than just what Boaz does and what it offers, but God's part in it. Get more on that at the end. Remember in chapter 2 when Boaz told her that the Lord will do this, not specifically through him, but the Lord will. And now she's saying, yes, and I want God to use you in that for me. And so whether her mother-in-law Naomi had impure intentions in mind or not, Ruth's answer here shows her spiritual integrity and her spiritual maturity. And listen to Boaz's answer to her, which shows the same exact thing about him as well. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. That's important. I love that there. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. What is said here is that Ruth is an example of that excellent woman of worth. Boaz says he appreciates her for not being like the other woman in verse 10. He says she is a worthy woman, verse 11. What does that mean today? This is the same exact Hebrew expression that is used in Proverbs 31 as the worthy, excellent wife. And you notice how it says she does not go after other young men, whether they were rich or poor. She wasn't in it just for the security. She didn't just want the richest, like, most buff guy who can give her the financial and physical security. She wanted spiritual security. While I was at Bible college, the running joke was always the girls that went for the MRS degrees. Okay, the misses, I'm here to marry instead. Okay, you guys didn't get that. Okay. And it's not a knock by any means on any woman who desires to be a wife and a mom, which is a gracious gift from the Lord alongside singleness. But I can't but help to notice how he compliments and praises her for not going after men because he knew that 
She was to be dependent on the Lord over any type of man. That she's to depend on the Lord for security, protection, provision, everything that a biblical man can be and that Boaz is, but she could have received all those things back in Moab with a Moabite. Like, if that's what she wanted at heart, she could have done that and went there to have that. That was the safer route. But instead, she followed God, even if it meant not receiving this, and he notices this, not just notice, but says, you are a woman of great worth because you put your priorities in the right place. And she could receive that now from the right godly man. And so when reading this, let me just briefly say before we move on, if that is something you struggle with as a woman, no, be encouraged. Do not fear. Depend on the Lord over all other things. This book, more than any other book in the Bible, has women speak more than men and women propel the narrative. And we can't help but to remember, Ruth wasn't even an Israelite, but an example of a more biblical, excellent woman than others included as God's people at that time. She was worthy because she put the Lord first. From here, we see in chapter 4 that Boaz, after this interaction, says, yes, I will do that. But he mentions, there's actually someone else before me that has the legal obligation to do this for you. And so he says to her, I don't have a right to marry you, to take care of you, to live happily ever after with you because of that legal obligation with this other man, but let me see what I can do. And that then unfolds in chapter 4, the last chapter. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there at this time, at the gate of those cities, that would be equivalent of the business court. That's where they did get together to do certain transactions. Boaz knew that this man would be there. He went to transact this legal negotiation over Naomi's property and the marriage of Ruth. And so as he went to the gate, sat down there, behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down and he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the, the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. This guy's thinking, here's this, oh man, I didn't, I got free land coming up. I got free property coming up. I'll take it. Absolutely. Thanks, Boaz. You're a good man for this. Thanks for the heads up. But wait, I love this. Look at verse five. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead. You notice how he mentions some of that. Remember, she had a reputation. All the women say, is that Naomi? Oh, is that Naomi? It's like, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Don't call me kindness. Call me bitter. Remember, it's the same lady, the widow of the dead. So now you're inheriting bitter mother-in-law. Not only that, 
You're getting, it says, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and of his inheritance, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Not only that, but you get Ruth the Moabite, adding in the one who worships false gods from the place of false gods. Not only you get the property left behind from Emelech, you'll also get his bitter wife and the Moabite daughter-in-law that comes with that land and property. So they'll continue to live there. Bitter mom and the seemingly pagan foreign daughter-in-law. Now he's not lying here. He's not being manipulative, but instead he's wisely intentionally showing this guy that what seems like a great business move, because that's all he cares about, it's a bit complex. Because here's the thing, as soon as he would start having children as well, guess who gets all the land and everything else? The kids. Not him. And that's what he's thinking about here. Remember, this is not just the land, but remember how I explained, or if you've never heard the role of a kinsman redeemer, the role of a kinsman redeemer, it's found in Leviticus 25. We see it in Ruth 2.20. says, what you should fulfill in this family, that's the closest relative who redeems both land and children when an Israelite man dies and fails to leave a son behind. This was the male relative who, according to various laws found in the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need of vindication. This also means that he'd be in charge of either marrying or getting Ruth married, and guess what? Again, he then doesn't own the land and property or the inheritance. It all goes to the sons. And so this man is thinking, I'll have to take a possible wife. The land it isn't even his, but there's future kids involved. And it's because he's looking at the deal as an investor instead of a husband and dad. Like Boaz is looking at it. This guy is looking at it financially, but Boaz is looking at it as legacy. He's looking at it as a love and legacy, Boaz is, in comparison to profit and loss. And so the guy says, no deal. You take it. I don't want to touch it. It's all yours. And so Boaz gets it. And Boaz, who does the right thing here, the man of character and integrity, shrewdly, wisely makes this transaction not caring about the money, but wanting to redeem the situation. And so after this, the elders of the city, they sign off. This is where Tamar is actually mentioned in this book, where they mention the people before and the birth line coming from her. Going back even from Rachel and Leah, they say, may Ruth be blessed along with you in your future legacy. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verses 13 through 17 in chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. By the way, study that. That was a miracle in itself because of her age, similar to Sarah and being barren. Many thought that she would not be able to be pregnant, get pregnant by that time. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher, of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And as we know, going back to Matthew 1, the genealogy to Jesus. So in conclusion, this important book, this important story of Ruth, it's ultimately a story of hope and a story of redemption. What we heard testimony of in our morning Advent time. Hope that can only be found in God and Jesus. And I want to end quickly saying three ways it gives us hope. Number one, we see hope in this story, in this book. We see hope in God when Christians care for others in hard times. From Ruth to Naomi to Boaz to Ruth, you see them directed to God when they cared for them in times they needed it the most. And church, those who may be visiting, I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know the struggle, the trial, the suffering that you may be going through. But I do ask, are you ending up more on the bitter side of what Naomi described? Are you feeling more of the isolation, the abandonment, the questioning, not trusting in God, therefore even going out to others? Or do you feel hope? And if that's you, or if that is others around your life, can I ask, can you help care for those so they can trust in the Lord? In fact, some of you may ask, how can I care for others who are suffering, that are going through hard things? Five quick things from there. Going back to chapter one, be present. Just like Ruth said to her mother-in-law, do not urge me to leave you, to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Sometimes in people suffering, they just need somebody to be present. Be present. Number two, help them join in community. As she says right after, your people shall be my people. That's what we describe as sharing life with each other. We need community. We have, as a church, method in community groups. But beyond that, you're going to also have discipleship relationships and then also just, again, community rooted in Christ, bonded in Christ, where you're there to help point them to share life with each other, to bear burdens, have accountability, to celebrate the victories with each other, to be on mission together. That community is used by the Lord when we are suffering, when we are going through trials. You need others. Help point them to community. Join them in community. Number three, point them back to God. Help them still take steps of faith that could include discipleship, that could include someone that doesn't know Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. But as she says, and your God, my God, it's helping them see faith. Now listen, I will say this. Hope you guys know and understand when I say this, what I mean by this. This is coming again from a pastor. As we all probably know, there are times in our suffering where the very first thing that we don't want to hear is Jesus, even though he's the most important thing and the thing that you need to point others to. But we have to make sure in some relationships that bridge is there. We have to make sure that we're present there, that there's community there. And so maybe right off the bat, when somebody goes through the worst of trials and you saying God is in control, 
is not going to be exactly what they want to hear or is needed for that exact time. But know this, as you're present, as you are sharing life, bearing burdens with them, ultimately it does need to go back to this. It does. So as you're present, as you're there, helping them take the steps of faith, trusting in the Lord. Because ultimately, listen, church, if God can't be trusted in our bad times, he is not worth trusting in the good ones. God is ultimately a God of all times. Point them back to Jesus. Number four, be faithful. He says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Trying to point to the faithfulness of the Lord, trying to be faithful until the end. Last of all, what we see in verse 17, chapter 1. She says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. Communicating, I will depend on the Lord to help me minister in this way. We, in the same way, must depend on God's grace. Because let's just be honest. Whether it's us going through those hard times or others, we need God's grace to give us the strength. How many have felt like you have tried to be there for people and you are completely depleted? I mean, you are empty. And we need God's grace to fill us up. If we're depending on others and not the Lord, we can't be used even in these situations. We need his grace. We need to make sure we're spiritually filling our cups as well. We see in this book that there is hope in God when Christians care for others in hard times, pointing them to that hope. Second, there is hope in Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. I love this story because I love the meaning behind the word redeemer. That's used so often in this book, that kinsman redeemer that can rescue a widow, a family, and even a people in the ways evidenced in this book that we know Boaz is ultimately just a foreshadowing of the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That ultimately Ruth, like the church, which is the bride of Christ, comes to Boaz as we come to Jesus. And what does she ask? Will you redeem me? And then who does all the work? Boaz. And that's Jesus to us. He does the work of redemption by paying that price and the penalty of sin by dying on the cross that we deserve rising from the dead. He did the work in the cross and the resurrection. Boaz, who's a picture of Jesus, our glorious Boaz, as C.A. Spurgeon once said, that is, Boaz is like Jesus, so we are to be like Ruth, the church, the bride of Christ, and we come to the Lord Jesus, we ask him for that redemption, and he redeems us at that great cost, more than just money that Boaz spent. But Jesus gives his own blood, lives, dies, and rises, giving himself as that gift to redeem us, to enter into a relationship with him. You may ask, why would he do that? He's not obligated. He doesn't owe us anything. But just like Boaz, it's grace. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. But it's out of his love. It's out of his mercy. It's out of his grace. And Jesus treats us just like Boaz treats Ruth and redeems us. Third and last of all, with that, when you believe you're that sinner, only way that sin can be paid, to be restored with God, reconciled back to him, redeemed, 
by trusting him, dying for it on the cross, rising from the dead, repenting of your sins, having saving faith in him as your savior, you can have great, great hope that he doesn't just save you and redeem you, but now he gives you hope by redeeming your stories and situations today. Christians, church, and here, in case you didn't hear even Nova's testimony during Advent, even as believers, do we not go through hard times still? We have hope that he didn't just redeem our soul when we received him as our Lord and Savior. He redeems our stories and situations today. He does. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're struggling with today. Do you trust and know? Do you have hope that he can use such things and redeem them? Because he can. That's our good God. That's the God that, as we're going to sing in a moment here, he will never, ever let us go. That's the God of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, of Bathsheba, an even harder story next week, and ultimately Mary that leads us to the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. That through a simple genealogy that, God, if we're honest, probably most times when we open up to the book of Matthew, we probably skip over just to get into the life and ministry of Jesus. But in it, we see truth. We see an unfolding of a beautiful story of some people that had no place that anybody else would say to be in it, just like many of us feel. That you redeemed and saved so that they can lead the birth of your son and what we anticipate, what we sing about, what we celebrate during Christmas season, what we're going to rejoice in hearing our kids sing this morning. Ultimately, begin to save our souls and reconcile us back to you. Oh, how we want to tell it on a mountain to all people, to all places who was in need of such hope and redemption. That is suffering. That is going through some of the toughest of things because of the consequence of sin that you save and redeem. You are a good, good God, even in the midst of the hard times. And as we sing this to you, as we worship to you, will you remind us you are good? Will you remind us how you want us to use us to care for others as they suffer? as you want to maybe even draw some people in here that does not know you to receive you as their Lord and Savior. That as they hear the lyrics, hear others singing, they're reminded of your word and that they, in their heart of hearts, will pray and just say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. That sin separates me from you and that you love me, you care for me by dying on the cross for that sin, taking it upon yourself, rising from the dead, and I give you my heart, I give you my life right now. Be my Lord and Savior they will cry out to have that forever God that as they hear the words will never ever let them go and they have hope in their situations and stories on here on out God we thank you we pray this all in your name Jesus